Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. If anything represents the new, new thing in our technological age today, it's the arena of artificial intelligence. From the factory floor to the glittering glass offices of law firms, smart machines are doing job after job after job. The conversation about jobs going offshore is so yesterday. Today, it's robots and algorithms that are the threat. Manufacturing is only the beginning. Service sector jobs, clerical jobs, accounting, paralegal are all starting to be done by machines. Drones may soon be doing deliveries and driving. Perhaps the last and largest bastion of blue-collar jobs will, within 10 years, be replaced by autonomous vehicles. So what's left for humans? As machines start to program themselves, as we've seen with autonomous cars, as more and more higher-level functioning is done by machines, what's a human to do? That's the subject of a new book by my guest, Julia Kirby. Julia Kirby is a contributing editor for the Harvard Business Review and a co-author of the previous book, Standing on the Sun. It is my pleasure to welcome Julia Kirby here to talk about Only Humans Need Apply, Winners and Losers in the Age of Smart Machines. Julia, thanks so much for joining us. Well, I'm just thrilled to be here. Delighted to have you here. To what extent is this something that should be, in your view, front and center in our discussions, uh, both in terms of public policy and our social and philosophical discussions about where we're going as a society? Well, very much front and center. You know, um, my co-author, Tom Davenport, and I wrote this book because we did kind of see a uh, I guess a, a gap in the discourse around that. I mean, there is a lot of discussion and there is a lot of um, energy around this topic, but it tends to be at this sort of very high macroeconomic uh, level where, you know, people, labor economists worry about, you know, the dislocation of jobs and skills-based obsolescence. and and But they rarely talk at a level that is really helpful to the individual. And what we wanted to do is to is to bring it down to a level of you know what if you are one of those knowledge workers who's worried that smart machines are moving into your workplace then you know is, is there any way that you can have some agency in this in the face of this you know threat or opportunity um, or do you just have to sort of sit on your hands and hope for the best? Isn't part of the problem, though, the sheer numbers, that, that even though some people, even in taking all the advice that you put forth and only humans need apply, and we'll talk about some of that, that the number of, of jobs that will be needed is just so significantly less. I mean, if you go into an automated factory floor today, someplace like the Tesla factory, for example, there are people on the factory floor. The problem is that there's about 120th or 130th as much as there used to be when they manufactured cars. It's true that, um, you know, the, the threat is real. And, uh, you know, we, we can kind of look at automation in three waves. At first, it kind of took over uh, dirty and dangerous work and um, kind of did the, the heavy lifting in a very literal sense for, for humans. Then it started to, you know, as we moved into a service-based economy, machines started taking over what you could say was the dull work. Um, but now they're, you know, with the cognitive aspect of these technologies, they are actually now taking over decision-making. It's a little hard for people to say, well, what's that higher ground? You know, if the, if the solution in the past has always been 
would just get more education, you know, get to the point where you're, uh, you know, moving up a level because you're leveraged by these machines doing, you know, the donkey work. Well, now what is that higher level that, that people can move to? It's hard for them to see that because we've always defined that higher level in terms of, you know, this very rational cognition kind of model where we say, well, the thing that's hardest for us to do is uh, is work that involves, you know, computation, uh, dealing with large amounts of data, looking for patterns in it, making decisions that are rational. Um, and when we see computers now doing that better than people can do it, then we think, well, see, there's there's really no way left for us to add value. But the fact is that all along there have been, you know, every job, you know, every knowledge work job has included a component of that, but also other components. And we need to start laying the emphasis on some of the some of the ways that people can complement the rational decision making of machines. Now, your question, you know, how many people will be affected by this? I, I would just say. Uh, you know, kind of all people will be affected by um, smart machines moving into their workplace and displacing some of their tasks. But it doesn't mean that whole jobs need to go away. And I would say that we've really under-leveraged the human component of a lot of these jobs and that there's lots of upside left in those. Mm -hmm. For example, talk about that. Where you think, for, as an example of a place where there is lots of upside, say. Well, so one classic example that's been go playing out over the last uh, several years is the the um, encroachment of smart machines into financial advising. Mm -hmm. So fa financial advising, very uh, complex mathematical um, exercise to, to figure out how someone's portfolio in, of investments should be structured. And that's now work that can be done by um, smart machines. Uh, much more quickly and much more accurately than it can be done by, you know, let's say 99.99% of humans. And so then you might think, well, what's left if you, if you, uh, you know, invested in long years of education and you were at the top of your class and you became a financial advisor, uh, what's left for you? Well, we talked to a, um, uh, financial advisor and we said you know how do you feel about this and he said well I definitely feel the uh, or hear the footsteps you know <laughs> coming up behind me um, and already I'm handing over to clients you know machine generated solutions and I feel like my role in it is that I've become kind of a psychiatrist in the process because what he's still encountering is you know a lot of uh, irrationality on the part of clients about investing. You know, we all know this from, uh -huh. you know, behavioral finance that we're not perfectly rational creatures. We need to be talked into taking on the level of risk that really makes sense if we're young or, or um, not investing all of our eggs, eggs in one basket. And, and all this takes, you know, a lot of hand-holding. But that's what he can do that a computer can't do for one of his, you know, valued clients that trusts him. And, and we would just say, all right, now start emphasizing that. Don't see that as a capitulation. 
see that as the higher ground that you're moving to. Right. I mean, you talk about it as kind of augmentation. What can people find to do or what are the jobs to be done that complement or augment the, the work that machines are doing? Yeah, we think that's such a key word because what we're uh, contrasting it with is automation. And that's, you know, from the standpoint of the employer, uh, what has been the norm when you bring in new productivity-enhancing machinery has long been to bring it in so that you can do with less humans, you know, so that you can just get the same thing you were doing done yesterday done today more efficiently because you've codified it and put it into code and or, you know, in, in past times, you know, you've just automated a, maybe a physical process. But what we're saying is that um, going forward, that will not provide a company with any competitive advantage because um, doing what you did yesterday more efficiently is uh, going to be table stakes. Instead, you always have to be innovating. And we know this, you know, there you are in Silicon Valley, yet you know it better than anyone. It's, um, this is... This is the way that firms compete today is by always thinking about what comes next. And you absolutely need uh, highly leveraged human intellect to be able to pursue the next big thing. The other part of it, though, comes down to the basics of what these augmenting jobs pay, what kind of money is available given the things that are being taken away from the job by automation. Yeah, it's easy to look at it that way today because all, you have this strong sense of this component of my job that is going to be taken off my plate. And by the way, it's the thing that I earned my degree to be able to do. It's the thing I had to prove I could do in order to get my kind of highfalutin knowledge job. So where does that leave me? But if you accept that um, the value that is going to provide a competitive advantage to a company is going to be the part of it that is differentiated, then that's still going to come from humans. You know, if, if you think that human employees aren't loyal, then you haven't seen how fast software um, takes up with your competitors. You know, as soon as something is put into software, as soon as something is made into a tool, it becomes available to everyone. So like the classic example is the ATM. You know, remember before there were ATMs, I mean, there was one bank that first created a, a, an ATM that we could all use. Um, it might have provided, a, you know, a momentary competitive advantage to that bank. But boy, that didn't last, did it? I mean, immediately the technology is replicated across the entire industry, and it simply becomes table stakes. It's not anything that provides a competitive advantage. Well, that is the lot of automation. So this means that companies are going to have to figure out, even as these machines become smarter and smarter, what is the thing that humans can still bring to the equation that's going to provide this differentiating advantage? And it's going to be in realms other than what we are teaching machines to do, which is just this very straightforward, rules-based computation, um, filtration of 
millions and gazillions of data points coming from big data systems. It's instead going to have to do with, um, you know, um, basic human qualities like courage and creativity and taste and empathy and things and humor, uh, lots of things that computers aren't very good at. They may get better. It's actually really interesting work that people are doing to, to allow computers to have some of these qualities. But for the most part, that work's going to be limited by the fact that as humans, and humans are always the end customers of these um, things that companies are producing, we actually don't want to get some of those things from a machine. We want to get them from another human. Well, we think we do at the moment because that's what we're used to. That, that of course, is always subject to change because it really reflects kind of the norms and the expectations and the social construct of society at any given time, all of which could change. Well, you are absolutely right about that, and that is such a fun realm to speculate mm -hmm. about. And, of course, that's what we always see filmmakers speculating right. about, like the, the movie Her with Joaquin Phoenix. Right. Um, <laughs> He, you know, there was a situation where he actually preferred to get love from software than from another human. It just was easier, and you know, she knew him better on some level. Um, so, yeah, I, I totally hear what you're saying, and yet, you know, just part of the human condition is a need for human connection, and I just don't think that's going to go away. One of the other things that is part of this, and that you talk about, and only humans need apply is the narrowing of the scope of what it is that humans contribute to the process. And that if you can narrow it to a point that it's something either that computers or machines can't do or that it's not worth machines doing. I mean, that's the other part of the equation. Yes, and that's one of the, you know, we use a kind of a... Uh, device in talking about um, what your strategies could be of steps. We call them steps. They're not actually sequential steps. They're kind of ways of moving as the machine comes into your workplace and starts doing uh, what you used to think of as maybe the core of your job. So we say there are kind of five moves you can make relative to this new partner or um, collaborator or um, compatriot in your workplace. And one of them is the one that you've just mentioned, which is you can step narrowly, to use our term. So what we're um, suggesting with that is that um, some work is, you would say, yeah, this is of a nature that could be encoded in software. It really could, you know, because it, it may draw on uh, vast amounts of information. It may have some kind of rules-based decision-making. And so you would think, yeah, that, that should, you know, that's probably part of the long tail and eventually it will be automated. But there will um, always be this economic case that has to be made, you know, to, to create a new software solution. Um, there, has to, there has to be a large enough market for it. And it has to be economical to keep it up to date. So we're mentioning this strategy of, you know, if you go into a niche that is narrow enough that you are essentially, you and, me, and a few others are essentially capturing the world's demand for that, um, then uh, there isn't a strong argument for anyone to, number one, create the software that can do that job, and number two, maintain it, because you will always have 
the more current knowledge that then someone would have to get around to putting into um, uh, the form of data. One of the other things that you talk about is the business of actually putting these machines together, both technically and physically, and that that is really one area of opportunity. Right. You could you, you could say, you know, if you can't beat them, join them right. for some of these strategies. I mean, if you accept that absolutely there will be these smart machines, then you can be um, in roles that really connect very directly to that new reality. One we would call stepping in, which means that you were working with them side by side. You are maybe doing the um, correction of when they're getting something wrong. You know, for instance, we had this fun, um, I guess it wasn't fun for him, but um, incident that made the news when Ben Bernanke was turned down for a mortgage application. And it's because, you know, based on the logic of the machine, he had just lost his job. He had this kind of a mishmash of income-producing um, revenue streams, and and he just didn't look like a good risk to the um, to the mortgage um, analysis uh, software, and so he was turned down. Well, of course, no human, you know, or no educated human, I guess, would have made that mistake. And so someone needs to step in and and understand when the logic is not working right. Or sometimes they maybe just need to step in so that they can explain the decisions that um, are being created by the machine uh, to their colleagues and to customers. Uh, That's one kind of, if you can't beat them, join them uh, strategy. But then there's also just the sheer fact that um, a lot of these solutions are going to be being produced. So you can be part of the the companies or organizations that are creating – um, the uh, the smart machines and the programs that run on them. Um, so if you're um, and and that doesn't necessarily mean that you are um, you know the the artificial intelligence expert that has done those uh, or a data scientist even. It may be that you're a marketer. I mean these companies have a a, a ton of uh, work involved in just developing and launching a new product. So, um, I mean, that that will obviously be a rich source of jobs uh, going forward. The other part of it is the degree to which we are now seeing machines programming machines. I mean, autonomous cars are are kind of the penultimate example of that at the moment, that the algorithm that one would have to write would be too complex so that basically you have to drive the cars and the machines have to learn and they then program themselves. And and you wonder where that's going in all of this. Yeah, I think that's what uh, Bill Gates had in mind when someone asked him, you know, is coding going to be a great um, um, career choice? So, you know, should I study that? And he said, well, you know, for a couple more years. Right. <laughs> so it's not exactly um, uh, confidence-inspiring if that's the, the degree you've been working on. But um, absolutely it's true that... Uh, uh, and then there's also just machine learning, an incredible um, realm of machines, you know, being able, being capable, capable of self-improvement without human intervention. You know, they're just um, essentially doing lots of little experiments, seeing what works, and um, mm-hmm. and then adding that to their knowledge of the world and moving on from there. 
the thing that's sort of depressing is that, you know, with humans, with every new generation of humans, you have to start back at, at uh, square one. But every generation of machines, I guess you could say, stands on the shoulder of mainframes, <laughs> you know, whatever their <laughs> uh, version of giants is, um, because you just upload whatever the state of the art was and they move on from there. So it's just a very rapid progression. In the research that, that you and Tom Davenport did on Only Humans Need Apply, how much denial did you find out there among people that just refuse to accept the reality of where all of this is going? Well, I guess you could say it's kind of a, an equivalent of the Lake Wobegon effect where um, um, everybody, you know, all the children are mm -hmm. above average. I mean, if you ask people how worrisome is this, then they'll say, oh, absolutely, many, many jobs, you know, will we'll go by the wayside because of this. But then if you ask them about their work, they, they tend to say, no, not my job, because they understand <laughs> about their own work this thing that I'm talking about with all these other components of it, you know, which may add up to something like three quarters of the actual work, which are not going to be um, put into code. And, but they don't necessarily see that about other people's work. I guess we think they're right, um, that uh, there are, you know, that, that there should not be too much terror on the other hand, you know, we, we think, you know, people need to um, need to think about what their strategies are going to be. They can't be complacent. You can't just think everything will work out in the end. I think you, you do have to figure out, well, how am I going to seize on these aspects of the job that aren't going to be handed over to the computer and then keep getting better at those so that I continue to add, you know, at least as much value as the machine does in the in the accomplishment of this work. How much attention is being paid to this in business schools? You know, I'm not aware that any attention is being paid in business schools to the organizational aspects of that. I mean, I would love it if someone's listening to this and then makes me aware of the, the body of work that I'm missing because I... I really think it's important, and it will, and it will become um, part of the curriculum. But you know, business school researchers, like great researchers and you know other academic disciplines, they they look for they they learn from practice. So this you know, and then there's of course this lag time in um, in what gets published, um, also part of the publishing process. But they. Um, you know, I think probably there are a lot of people who are starting to look at these um, workplaces now. Now, there is actually one uh, interesting line of work um, that some folks in the UK are doing because there's a, um, there's a whole set of, um, of uh, solutions known as robotic process automation. And um, uh, that has... You know, what that means is uh, bringing in software at the department level that allows people to essentially um, uh, hand over some of their repetitive, uh, boring, routine tasks to software to perform, even though it's not um, um, integrated into the whole IT system of the enterprise. Um, they, that, that is a really interesting... 
kind of innovation because people are bringing it in kind of at the level of the department. It's not being imposed on them from, you know, from, from headquarters. And uh, there is some really interesting, I guess you would say, corporate sociology being uh, uh, done on how that's affecting people. So, for instance, one company um, found that people really embraced the software. And, and, you know, I mean, it was referred to as a robot. There is actually no physical robot to it, you know, waving right. its arms like Robbie or something. It is, it is simply uh, automated decision-making. But um, but still, they saw it as a colleague. They gave it a name. They um, you know were, were very welcoming welcoming of it because in that setting it was made very clear from the very outset that um, the introduction of this machine will not result in any uh, layoffs. This is purely to leverage the talent of the people that we have. Mm-hmm. That, that's a unique example, though, and, and, and sort of, as you say, at the experimental stage, where, all, where it all leads ultimately is, is the thing that has people afraid. And um, the thing they should fear is that their employers won't get it. So we wrote this book to individuals and said, here's, here's the, here are the set of strategies you can consider for how you're going to continue to add value and be able to capture that value as gainful employment. But, you know, managers in big companies still call the shots on what um, jobs will go by the wayside and what jobs will be retained. And they really need to change their mindset. And I think uh, that it will become clear over time the point that I'm making about, you know, the, the source of competitive advantage can't be to simply automate all the work and have sort of a race to the bottom um, in commoditization. You Managers, though, will have to learn to, to um, emphasize the human element of the work, and that will be a difference because um, management as a discipline – you know, it's always been a synthetic discipline. It draws on, um, it draws on engineering. It draws on psychology. It draws on sociology. It draws on lots of rich academic traditions. But in the, you know, in recent decades, it has really pulled the pendulum over toward the engineering discipline, and um, I think that pendulum is going to have to swing uh, further away from that for people to figure out. Well, how will I restructure these workplaces and processes so that I'm um, putting much more emphasis on what humans uniquely bring to value creation? And part of the reason that I think that may happen, to, to your point specifically, is that the danger of this, as we started out talking about, is all the way up the food chain, that it's impacting managers as well, as opposed to the, the way it worked in the Industrial Revolution and, and other increases in pro- productivity. This impacts potentially everybody. Right. I mean, there are some... Um, there. First of all, I'll mention, you know, there was a great old episode of Twilight Zone. I don't know if you're if you're a Twilight Zone fan, um, but all this stuff is now available on YouTube, so I think it's found a new audience. But there's a great episode where there is a manager who's working in a in a company and um and, you know, the the company owner wheels in the new machine that's going to 
you know, take his job. And, and that, but, you know, when does that ever happen? Has it ever actually happened that some new machine has been brought in and then immediately that means someone's job is gone? Not very often. Again, it's because it, that part of the job that the machine can take over is usually less than, let's say, a quarter. Now, there are some... Um, there are some exceptions to that. So Tom and I, uh, Tom Davenport, again, my co-author, and I have been thinking about what are some of those exceptions. Managerial job category that I would say is is really under threat is in this uh, compliance officer Mm -hmm. space. Because it is so um, uh, rules-based, so so thoroughly codified, because that's the whole point. It's... um, it's about showing that a company is in compliance with the regulations imposed on it by um, uh, governmental agencies and industry bodies. And um, just a couple of years ago, you know, the Wall Street Journal was reporting, uh, based on Bureau of La- uh, Labor Statistics, um, that um, you know this is a very hot career space, and um, things look very rosy for those entering this field for you know, the foreseeable future. Well, that was just a couple of years ago. And um, this month we're reading also in the Wall Street Journal that um, uh, that AI is moving very rapidly into this space and AI solutions will, um, will uh, relieve much of the compliance reporting um, and monitoring workload that uh, is being imposed on companies now. And um, so that will absolutely mean that they won't need all that uh, expensive human talent doing that work. Still, the AI can't quite pick which companies will succeed and which ones won't, and which stocks to buy and which ones not to. Well, I mean, you would hope that somehow it's all based on someone's assessment that um, there is there are good fundamentals going on in some hot stock. But sometimes you wonder, I mean, with uh, programmatic train, uh, trading, the, it really is all based now on, um, you know, very small movements that then get amplified by, by all the trading that happens as a result. And, very unclear <laughs> what's what's the original signal that's causing any of it. Fascinating. Julia Kirby, her book is Only Humans Need Apply, Winners and Losers in the Age of Smart Machines, just out from Harper's. Julia, I thank you so much for spending time with us. I thank you, too. This has been fun. Thank you.